You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. This week, you're getting the episode a day early, so you can get as much horror content as possible within the month of October. This week is another double feature. We're covering the history of the Wolfman, as well as the creature from the Black Lagoon, the last inductees into the Universal Classic Monster series. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Oh, Larry. Larry, what happened? What's the matter? A wolf. Help! Help! Oh, please, hurry! Hurry, please! What happened to him? A wolf bit him. something. Can't you help him? Legends of humans shape-shifting into animals have been around since the earliest days of recorded history. These stories were used to terrify, to entertain, and to caution against certain actions. In European folklore, vampires and werewolves were commonly linked. Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, for example, stated that the Count could shape-shift into a wolf as well as a bat, something only alluded to in the original films. In the Victorian era, humans suffering from a condition known as hypertrichosis, or werewolf syndrome, were a part of traveling sideshows. Audiences packed the venues, fascinated by the idea of such a close connection, they believed, between human and beast, despite the reality of the condition being caused by genetics, cancer, or even certain medications. You may not know this, I certainly didn't until I started writing this episode, but The Wolfman was not the first werewolf film Universal produced. The first was 1935's Werewolf of London. Originally an adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as well as The Invisible Man, the film eventually took on more of the elements of werewolf folklore. The titular werewolf, Dr. Glendon, was a botanist who was bitten by a werewolf while on a trip to Tibet. He returns to London in search of a rare plant that can hopefully cure his condition. Makeup designer Jack Pierce, whom you've heard about quite a bit this month, was tasked with coming up with the werewolf's design. His were denied in favor of a more minimalistic look, making sure the film would pass the censors. Pierce's design would be used for their second werewolf film six years later. This film would be the one that would go on to inspire An American Werewolf in London and An American Werewolf in Paris, as well as becoming the official werewolf within the Universal Monster Echelon. You killed the wolf. Well, 
there's no crime in that, is there? The wolf was Balaam. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Balaam became a wolf, and you killed him. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet, or a silver knife, or a stick with a silver handle. You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. Take this charm, the pentagram, the sign of the wolf. It can break the evil spell. Evil spell, pentagram, wolfbane. Oh, I'm sick of the whole thing. I'm gonna get out of here. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, quit handing me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Wear this charm over your heart always. All right, all right, I'll take it. What's it worth to you? I'll give you... to show me the wound? What? Do you dare to show me the wound? Go now. And heaven help you. Eager to develop a new film for Boris Karloff, Carl Emley Jr. considered a treatment from French director Robert Flory called The Wolfman, a darker, more expressionist film than the one eventually made for the studio. The script for The Wolfman was written by Kurt Seodmach, a German-born science fiction author and screenwriter. The Jewish Seodmach fled Germany in the mid-1930s for England in fear of the rising anti-Semitism within his country. He arrived in the U.S. in 1937, where he got his big Hollywood break a few years later with the script for The Wolfman. Seodmach is credited with creating several of the modern werewolf legends, including the Pentagram brand, A Weakness to Silver Bullets, and of course the poem often associated with The Wolfman. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers at night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. In his autobiography, Seodmach compares the German people who became Nazis to the idea of becoming a werewolf, people who turned from likable individuals into monsters. In the original script, Seodmach made the transformation of Talbot vague, making it unclear if he was becoming a literal werewolf or if the whole thing was just a figment of his imagination. This did not make it into the final film. The film takes place sometime in the early 20th century. This was left vague on purpose to give the film a period yet timely vibe. Barry Talbot returns home to a village in Wales to patch up his relationship with his father, Sir John Talbot. Talbot falls in love with a young village woman named Gwen who runs the local antique shop. At the shop, Larry eyes a silver-headed walking stick decorated with a wolf. Gwen tells him the legend of the werewolf, which in this film is defined as a man who turns into a wolf certain times of the year, not necessarily the full moon. Later, Larry attempts to rescue a friend of Gwen's from an apparent wolf attack. He kills the wolf with his new walking stick, but is bitten in the process. A fortune teller informs him that he was bitten by her son, whom had taken on the form of a wolf. 
She also reveals that Larry will transform into a wolf as well, since he who is bitten by a werewolf and lives will turn into one himself. Talbot transforms into a wolf-like creature and stalks the village, first killing the local gravedigger. Talbot retains vague memories of being a werewolf and wanting to kill, and continually struggles to overcome his condition. He is finally bludgeoned to death by his own father with his silver walking stick after attacking Gwen. The elder Talbot watches in horror as the dead werewolf transforms back into his son. Gwen notices as well and cries for her friend as the local police arrive on the scene. Gwen, I'm going away. Away? But why? Uh, I gotta go. I can't stay here any longer. Oh, let me go with you. I'll fetch a few things and be back in a minute. No, no. I'm going alone. But I can help you. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay around here much longer, you can't tell who's going to be next. Wait. It might even... Please. The actor cast to play the Wolfman was Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney Jr. was born Creighton Toll Chaney on February 10, 1906, the son of the Man of a Thousand Faces and Universal's original go-to makeup designer Lon Chaney and singer Francis Cleveland Creighton Chaney. Chaney Sr. and Francis divorced after Francis' attempt to kill herself when Chaney Jr. was about seven. He would spend the next three years in boarding schools until his father remarried and became an actor. When the elder Cheney died at the age of 47 from throat cancer, the younger Cheney made his way into acting, something his father had been dead set against. Starting at RKO under his given name, Cheney Jr. didn't adopt his father's name until studio pressure forced him to do so. Chaney acted steadily for a number of years with various different studios until he secured a long-term contract with Universal. Chaney had already proven his ability to play monsters, having taken up the mantle of Frankenstein from Karloff in Ghost of Frankenstein. A year later, he was cast as Larry Talbot, the Wolfman. The role, while iconic, typecast Chaney for the remainder of his career. To achieve the look of the monster, Jack Pierce ended up using a combination of rubber prosthetics, fake teeth, and yak hair adhered to Cheney's face. The entire process took about six hours to put on and another six to take off, a process that frustrated the actor. The transformation scenes in the film were achieved by putting a little bit of makeup on Cheney, filming a scene, then putting on a little bit more, and shooting further into the scene, and so on and so forth. In the edit room, the footage was overlapped onto each other, causing the illusion of the unnatural transformation. The way you walked was thorny, through no fault of your own. But as the rain enters the soil, the river enters the sea, so tears run to a predestined end. Your suffering is over. Now you will find peace for eternity. Larry 
like its predecessors, 1941's The Wolfman was a financial and overall critical hit. The Wolfman became the third most popular of the monsters after Dracula and Frankenstein. Lon Chaney, unlike the other actors whom had betrayed the monsters, would betray the Wolfman in all of the classic Universal monster films. Since the Wolfman had died in the first film, Universal needed to find a way to bring him back. They called on Siedmach once more, whom penned Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, the first of the monster movie mashups in 1943. The Wolfman is brought back to life by two unsuspecting grave robbers and spends the majority of the film trying to figure out how to kill himself. His journey takes him to a mad scientist who attempts to, quote, suck the life energy out of Talbot to give to the doctor's new monster. Something goes wrong, and the two are resurrected to their full powers to duke it out. The next Wolfman showing came in House of Frankenstein in 1944, starting off from where they left the two monsters in the previous film, frozen in blocks of ice. Once defrosted, a new mad doctor, played by Boris Karloff, recommends a brain transplant, like you do. Before he can get his brain transplant, however, he is shot and killed by his gypsy lover with a silver bullet. But wait, Larry lives. In House of Dracula, the wolfman has risen from the grave once more, though it is not explained how, but we do learn some interesting things about his condition, not previously mentioned in prior films. Apparently, lycanthropy is caused by pressure on the brain. Larry Talbot is cured of his werewolf nature by the end of the film, but where's the fun in that? The last time Lon Chaney returned to play the Wolfman was in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948. Why and how did Talbot's condition resurface? No one knows. But in the film, the Wolfman is more of a good Samaritan than the mindless killer of the prior films, taking on Count Dracula, whom the Wolfman kills in an act of self-sacrifice. With that, the era of the Lon Chaney Wolfman was at its end. Now, I'm really sorry to be upsetting you, but I have to warn you. Warn me? We were attacked by a werewolf. I'm not listening to this. On the moors, we were attacked by a lycanthrope, a werewolf. I was murdered, an unnatural death. And now I walk the earth in limbo until the werewolf's curse is lifted. Shut up. The wolf's bloodline must be severed. The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. It's you, David. What? Please believe me. You'll kill people. Nurse! Listen to me! Nurse! The supernatural, <laughs> the power of darkness, it's all true. The undead surround me. Have you ever talked to a corpse? It's boring. I'm lonely. Take your life, David. Kill yourself before you kill others. Many different iterations of the Wolfman or werewolves have followed in the 70 years since the first appearance of the Wolfman, including the previously mentioned An American Werewolf in London and its sequel, An American Werewolf in Paris. These films benefited from better makeup, bigger budgets, color film, and special effects. 
Rick Baker, think of him as the modern-day Jack Pierce, would go on to change the face of 80s horror makeup effects and win an Oscar for the transformation scene featured in Werewolf in London. In 2006, a remake for The Wolfman was announced by Universal, starring Benicio Del Toro as The Wolfman, as well as serving as a producer. Del Toro was a huge fan of The Wolfman and even collected memorabilia. In addition to the original films, Del Toro pulled from Werewolf of London and The Curse of the Werewolf, a 1961 Hammer film based on the original Wolfman movie. The film suffered from similar issues to the 2007 Mummy remake, going through multiple directorial hands. Eventually, Joe Johnston, whom had previously directed Jurassic Park 3 for the studio, was signed on. He had the script rewritten from the previous versions. The film had several reshoots, including one needed to completely change the look of one werewolf in the film, caused the release date of the film to be pushed several times, eventually released on February 12, 2010 in the United States, 15 months after its original release date. Despite years of trying to get it on the big screen, Del Toro's Wolfman was a critical and financial flop. In 2014, the LA Times listed it as one of the most expensive box office flops of all time. Silver lining, Rick Baker with makeup supervisor Dave Elsie would win Oscars for their makeup design for the film. President of Universal at the time, Ronald Meyer, called the film in a Guardian article, quote, one of the worst movies we ever made. The moment I saw it, I thought, what have we all done here? That movie was crappy. We all went wrong. That's one we should have smelled out a long time ago. The script never got right. The director was wrong. Benicio Del Toro stunk. It all stunk. We may not have to wait much longer for another iteration of The Wolfman either. While a Dark Universe film was announced, it was scrapped with the rest of the Dark Universe. This wasn't the end for a Wolfman remake, however, as it was announced in May 2020 that Ryan Gosling will be the next to take up the mantle of the Wolfman. Lee Wanell, whom directed the 2020 Invisible Man reboot, is in talks to direct the film. The Wolfman is coming. Here it is, gentlemen. Exactly as I found it. It's amazing. It's incredible. Could it possibly belong to a Pleistocene man? Well, the chances are much greater that that hand belonged to an amphibian, Mark. One that spent a great deal of time in the water. Well, then how do you account for the structure of the fingers? Obviously for land use. What do you think, Dr. Matos? We can be sure of one thing. Whatever it was, it was very powerful. You say you have hopes of finding the rest of the fossil? As soon as I get a suitable expedition together. Well, why don't we make up the expedition? We're here now, and after all, it does come under the heading of our work, doesn't it, David? It certainly does. More and more, we're learning the meaning and the value of marine research. Look, look over here. This lungfish, the bridge between fish and the land animal. How many thousands of ways nature tried to get life out of the sea and onto the land. This one failed. He hasn't changed in millions of years. But here... Here we have a clue to an answer. Someday spaceships will be traveling from Earth to other planets. 
How are human beings going to survive on those planets? The atmosphere will be different, the pressures will be different. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. Originally, I wasn't planning on including the creature from the Black Lagoon in this month's lineup because of its release proximity to the rest of the films. But I kept getting asked about including him, so let's do it. The creature, often referred to as the Gill Man, wasn't released until 1954, 23 years after Dracula first terrified its audiences, and several years after the popularity of the monster genre had once again waned. The idea to make the film originated over a decade before in 1941 at a dinner party. Actor William Allen was attending the soiree during the shooting of Citizen Kane, in which Allen played the reporter chasing the story on the mysterious life of the recently departed Charles Foster Kane. At the party, Allen struck up a conversation with the cinematographer, in basic terms the man who shoots the movie. Gabriel Figuero was from Mexico and recounted to Allen and the rest of the party the myth of a race of amphibious humanoid creatures that reside in the Amazon River. Figuero claimed that the creature emerged from the Amazon once a year, grabbed a young woman from a local village, and then returned to the depths from whence he came. While the other guests laughed at his tale, Fulguero insisted that it was true. Despite the other guests' reception of the story, Allen was transfixed. Ten years later, Allen had become a producer for Universal, working primarily in westerns, though he was quickly gaining an interest in science fiction. Before he set to work on what would become the creature from the Black Lagoon, he came up with It Came From Outer Space, which was later fleshed out by Ray Bradbury and released in 1953. Allen wrote some story notes based on what he had heard that night at the dinner party, calling it the sea monster. He used Beauty and the Beast as inspiration to fill out the rest of his story. In December of 1952, Maurice Zim, a former radio man turned screenwriter, wrote a 59-page treatment before it was passed on to Harry Essex and Arthur A. Rose to complete the screenplay, calling it The Black Lagoon. And now, for the last time this month, here's the synopsis for The Creature from the Black Lagoon. A geology expedition into the Amazon reveals fossilized evidence that would provide a direct link between land and sea animals. Expedition leader Dr. Carl Maya reunites with friend and fellow scientist Dr. David Reed. David works for a California aquarium, but has been a guest at the local institute in Brazil while he studies lungfish. David persuades his boss, Dr. Mark Williams, to fund an expedition to find the remainder of the discovered skeleton. At the base camp for the expedition, two of Dr. Maya's lab assistants await his return. An amphibious humanoid from the same species as the recently discovered fossil comes upon the camp. 
His presence frightens the assistants, whom panic and attempt to attack the creature who kills them in the process. The now-funded expedition boards the Rita, a steamer captained by a man named Lucas. The passengers consist of David, Carl, Mark, Dr. Edwin Thompson, and David's girlfriend and colleague, Kay Lawrence. When they arrive at the camp, they discover the recently murdered assistants. Captain Lucas believes they were likely killed by a jaguar, but some of the others aren't so sure. The group excavates the area the fossil was found, coming up with nothing. Defeated, Mark wishes to give up, but is persuaded by David to look further down the river, where part of the embankment may have washed downstream into the nearby lagoon. Lucas informs them that this area is called the Black Lagoon, a paradise from which no one returns. The scientists take the risk and head to the lagoon. Unbeknownst to them, the creature that killed Carl's assistants has been following them, watching from the depths. The creature becomes infatuated with Kay as he follows them to the Black Lagoon. Upon arrival, David and Mark dive to collect rock samples. Kay later goes for a swim, unknowingly stalked by the creature as she does so. The Gilman continues to stalk them, killing several of Lucas's crew in the process. The creature is eventually caught and locked in a cage. Edwin, guarding the creature, is severely injured when he manages to escape. Kay smashes the creature with a lantern, driving it off. David wants to return to civilization, but Mark, whom has become obsessed with catching or killing the creature, objects. When they attempt to leave the lagoon, they discover that the creature has barricaded the exit of the lagoon with logs. As they try to remove them, Mark is killed by the creature and abducts Kay in the process, taking her to his cavernous lair. The surviving men give chase and rescue Kay. They pepper the creature with bullets, whom retreats back to the lagoon, where his body returns to the watery depths. For several reasons, the 1950s was an interesting time for cinema. The television had caused a massive dip in box office returns, and the studios were doing everything they could to lure audiences back into the seats. We discussed a few methods that were used at several other studios over the last couple months, including VistaVision and CinemaScope. But another method, one that's still around relatively regularly today, though in a very different manner than it was in the 50s, was 3D. 3D had been around since about 1915 and was invented by Edwin S. Porter of the great train robbery fame, though the method was not implemented until the 1950s. In 1953, the film House of Wax was released in 3D to great commercial success, leading to the same method being applied to the creature from the Black Lagoon. To create the look of the monster, a bodysuit was designed by Millicent Patrick, a former Disney animator, though her contribution would be downplayed for nearly 50 years, the sole credit being given to makeup artist Bud Westmore. 
Jack Kavon, whom designed prosthetics for amputees during World War II and worked on The Wizard of Oz, created the eventual bodysuit, while Chris Mueller Jr. sculpted the head. The creature was played primarily by Ben Chapman. At 6'5", Chapman was the ideal height to play the menacing creature. He cited his Monster Universe predecessors as his inspiration for the creature, while he played the character above ground on the Universal backlot. Raquel Browning, an underwater performer turned actor, was the double for the underwater scenes, which were shot by a second unit in Wakula Springs, Florida. The costume made it impossible for Chapman to sit down during the 14-hour shoots. This caused him to become overheated quite easily. He opted to stay in the onset lake, where he would be hosed down by crew members. They dared to bring him back alive from his haunts deep in the jungles of the Amazon. They dared to put him on display with the other denizens of the deep, while thousands came to marvel and wonder. You know, I, I pity him sometimes. He's so alone. The only one of his kind in the world. If anything goes wrong, you head straight for the surface, you understand? All right, let's go. They dared to study him, to probe him, to tempt him with the lure of a woman's beauty, thinking that mere chains could hold in check the primeval forces that surged and roiled within this strange being from the dawn of time. Hey, look, he broke the chain! Before the film had even come out, a sequel was already in the works. Luckily for the studio, the first film was successful, making $3 million before the end of 1954. The original team, including director Jack Arnold and actor Ben Chapman, returned for the sequel. The sequel was also released in 3D and was based off the second half of Alan's original story treatment that hadn't made it into the final script. In the vein of King Kong, the second film centered around the creature being caught in order to become an attraction at a SeaWorld-esque theme park. Despite 3D being one of the most popular aspects of the original film, one year later, when Revenge of the Creature was released, the public's interest in the medium had waned. It didn't help that projectionists of the era, also bored with 3D, became lazy, leading to the films often being shown out of sync. Despite this, audiences still turned out enough to warrant yet another sequel, 1956's The Creature Walks Among Us, which would be its final sequel. This time the film was not shot in 3D, and Don Megawan took over for the role of the creature for the above-ground scenes. This film is considered the last of the Universal Classic Monster series. It's all new, The Creature Walks Among Us, more terrifying in human form. Striking at the heart of the city with inhuman fury. <coughs> the creature walks among us. Horror unleashed by the daring of man and a dangerous experiment of science. I have burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. The creature walks among us. The grimmest cargo ever brought to civilization. Now a monster made even more frightful by human emotions. Over the last several years, many attempts have been made to produce a remake. 
Producer Gary Ross has been trying to get a sequel on its feet since about 2007, reimagining the creature's origin as the result of pharmaceuticals being dumped into the Amazon River. When the original director, Breck Eisner, dropped out of the project in 2009, the film pretty much died there. Another proposed remake was planned for the Dark Universe, but if you listened last week, you know how that shook out. The 2017 The Mummy film had even alluded to the creature's existence. If the Dark Universe had gone forward, this would have been the first time the creature would have interacted with his monster movie counterparts. With the Dark Universe scrapped, it is unclear if a movie version will go forward. The creature for now remains isolated, both within its era and its own world within the Universal Monster Universe, waiting for its time to rise from the depth of the Black Lagoon once more. that's going to do it for this month. I hope you have a safe and happy Halloween. If it's after Halloween, I hope the hangover isn't too brutal. As always, if there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. You can find them at at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, And if you want to reach me, you can email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I do as much research as I can in the week it takes me to write and produce each episode. So if I got anything wrong, please email me and I will correct it on a future episode. And like you've heard on this podcast and probably many others you listen to, I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there for the time being. So if you could rate, review, and subscribe so that the algorithm will allow other people to find this podcast, that would be a huge help. Next month, we're covering Walt Disney, the man, his life, and the massive empire his dreams created. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.